Let's turn this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Now today is not the first Sunday in Advent, technically, but uh, at the corner of Lincoln and Randolph, it is the first Sunday in Advent, uh, because what I want to accomplish takes more than four Sundays to do, so we got to start early, okay? That's just kind of the way that it works, the way that it works. Now, sometimes you just need extra time to get through what you want to do because there is a flow to things, and you have to start somewhere and you want to end somewhere, and when, you know, in the... uh, secret place in my office when I'm, I'm not napping, I, I, I come to this conclusion that, gee, it's going to take us five weeks instead of four, okay, and that's, that's where we are. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read from Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 15. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us this morning, and, and as we read, and as we dissect, and as we dig into this, that you would reveal to us exactly what we need to know, that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would come upon us, that we would understand the blessedness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that it took to cleanse us of our sin. We pray this would be fixed in our minds today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice here, Satan is a liar and he uses as much truth as he can to convince you that his lie is true. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he, that would be God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Silly questions. But God knew, and we'll understand why he asked those questions in a moment. Verse 12, And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. 
So before we get into this, I just want to make a comment about the Christmas season and what a great opportunity that we have during really the month of December and all of Advent. I want to state the obvious. There are people whose hearts are more tender to the things of the gospel in the month of December than they are in the rest of the year. It might be all the decorations. It might be something that from their birth they remember. They, used to, they were in the, the children's Christmas program when they were young or something like that. But there is something in their hearts that makes them a little bit more inclined towards the things of Christ in December. Now, we should not see this as a time to question and say, well, why, is, why aren't their hearts more tender the other 11 months of the year? Why is it that they just might guide through in December? We shouldn't be asking that question. We should be inclined to say, how can I best reach out to those people whose hearts are tender at this time of year? There are people who will come to a Christmas Eve service who won't come to any other thing throughout the year, right? And, and, and we should rejoice that they are there. And make that a great opportunity and look at them and say, and look at our friends who, who aren't regularly involved in church and say, maybe Christmas is the time that they would be inclined. Maybe I should be reaching out to them and that this is a time not just to celebrate the, the things of Christ and his birth, but a time of evangelism for those who may not have any inclination the rest of the year. So don't shy away from inviting, reaching out, or welcoming people into church the next couple months or the next couple weeks. It's a great opportunity for us to demonstrate the things of Christ. Now, in, in the Christmas time, there's always some unexpected things. Now, I know December's on, Christmas is on December 25th this year. That's no surprise. I think it's going to be December 25th next year, uh, pretty much, too. Um, but there's an unexpected graciousness to us in Christmas, an unexpected graciousness that when we read about sin and when we read about our human proclivity to go away from God and focus on our own selfish needs, we find this graciousness that God extends to us is really a surprise to us. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise because everything in the gospel points to God reaching out to us. It points to God calling us. It points to God providing for us again and again and again. Now, when we come to this passage, the passage that we know as the fall, the sin of Adam, and Adam as our federal head represents all of us, so when Adam sinned, that sin was passed down in all of us. So none of us are without sin except that one guy whose birth we're celebrating at this time. He was without sin. In this text, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Martin Luther said, This verse embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Now just think about that. Usually we would say, what's the verse that really jumps out at you and encapsulates everything that the Scripture teaches? And you might say, oh, John 3.16. Luther said, Genesis 3.15. Because you have the fall, you have the curse of Satan, and you have the promise of salvation. 
It's a passage about a curse, and it is a curse um, upon Satan, and it's a passage about the results of what happens when you go against what God says. God said, Adam and Eve, you can do anything. You can eat anywhere you want except this one place. This was the no of God. He put up this, this little guardrail around this one area and said, no, you can't be involved in that. Along comes Satan and says, oh, did God really say that? You won't really die. And Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God. So they acted upon their own counsel and ignored the things of God. And there are consequences when we ignore the things of God, when we go against what he says. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in in Sunday school, we've been dealing with the, the topic of hell, and we're about to go to the topic of heaven, which is a lot more fun, frankly, okay? Um, but you can't deal with the doctrine of hell without going to Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Okay, And one of his um, classic sermons on, the, on this topic was the justice of God and the damnation of sinners. And it's 33 pages long. Okay, Now you think, well, maybe it's big type. No, no, it's just the opposite. It's little type. It must have been a two or a two and a half hour sermon. It just goes on and on. And, and he just he makes the case of how terrible hell is, but how justified God is in his actions. And I'm going to take about 2,000 words and boil them down to 100 for you, okay? Every crime or fault deserves a greater or less punishment in proportion as the crime itself is greater or less. A crime is more or less heinous according as we are under greater or less obligations to the contrary. Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority, for that is the very meaning of the words. God is a being infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellency and beauty. To have infinite excellency and beauty is the same thing as to have infinite loveliness. He is a being of infinite greatness, infinite majesty, and infinite glory, and therefore he is infinitely honorable. He is infinitely exalted above the greatest potentates of the earth and the highest angels in heaven, and therefore he is infinitely more honorable than they. His authority over us is infinite, and the ground of his right to our obedience is infinitely strong. For he is infinitely worthy to be obeyed himself, and we have an absolute, universal, and infinite dependence upon him. So, so that sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. Listen to that stuff for two hours. You know, wonder they were throwing themselves in the, in the aisle and, and crying out for God's mercy. But the surprise is we don't get the infinite punishment. We get the infinite grace. Now just think about that. We deserve this infinite punishment. But yet God rains down upon those who know the things of Christ, those whose eyes have been opened to the things of Christ, this infinite grace. And it all begins here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now this passage is picked up 
by Paul at the end of Romans uh, chapter 16 where he applies this language of the victory of Christ over Satan. He applies it to that event in the crucifixion of Christ, in his death and his resurrection. When Satan thought he had Christ, when Satan thought, I've got God now, I've killed his Savior, and he looked in that tomb and it was empty. And he said, where'd he go? Where'd he go? I thought I had him. No, he did not have him. So for the last 1,900 years, this passage really has been called the first gospel. It has been called the first gospel. It's the gospel set forth in the context of Moses' prophecy that he records God's curse on the serpent, but it's a curse that incorporates a promise of salvation, a promise of salvation. Now, just so we understand this, there's a larger theological point here, um, and I don't want to bore you with theology, which really excites me, but I, I know it may not excite you in the same way. The fall of man did not catch God by surprise. Okay, I want you to understand that. He was not sitting up there on his throne, and he looked down and said, that, that sneaky Adam, you know, he went off and did what I, I, I told him not to. What are we going to do now? You know, looks at the God, looks at Jesus and the Holy Spirit and says, guys, what, what, what are we going to do now? That's not what happened. The fall did not catch God by surprise. The plan to send Christ into this world to give his life for the salvation of sinners was not hatched in response to man's sin. Man's sin has always been a part of the plan of God to send Christ into the world to die for sinners. That plan, which began before the beginning began, that's when the plan, when, when it was only God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, this, they were in agreement that this would be the plan to be worked out. It did not catch God by surprise. So our salvation begins with this curse. Now you'll notice several interesting things in the passage, and it goes all the way back to, to verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Here they are trying to hide themselves from a God. God's got one garden, he's got one man, he's got one woman, and there they are hiding behind a bush, thinking God's not going to see them. And God walks through the garden, and he doesn't peek around the bush and says, what are you you know, I found you. It's not like you, I couldn't see you. He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, well, we hid ourselves because we were naked. He says, who told you you were naked? There's only one reason why Adam's hiding himself, one reason why he knows he is naked. Now, the reason that God asked these questions was to cultivate a response of repentance. To cultivate a response of repentance. Think about it for a moment. Why are we called to confess our sin to our Heavenly Father? Doesn't he already know it? I mean, he knows everything. He knows what we do in secret. He knows what we do in public. He knows the, the thoughts in our minds before we actually speak them. Well, well, Lord, if you already know that stuff, why do I have to tell you it? Why do I have to confess it to you? Because it cultivates within us a response of repentance. When we raise our own sin before us, we see it. We see the, the ugliness. We see the heinousness of it. We see how much it offends our Heavenly Father. It should drive us to our knees because on our knees before Him is the only place that that sin can be forgiven. So look at verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. 
Now, this is judgment language. This whole passage here, 14 really to the end of the chapter, is all about judgment. And it's a just judgment. Okay, This isn't capricious. This isn't something arbitrary from the Lord. They said, man, you really made me mad, and I'm going to curse you forever. No, this is a judgment that is just because the sin was worthy of this great curse upon him. Now, God says to Adam... I'm going to curse the ground because of you. He doesn't curse Adam, but he curses the ground. And when he comes to Satan, he curses Satan. Now, there's a big distinction there. When, he, when, when Adam sinned and the ground is cursed, it is in a sense, in a very real sense, that all things are tainted by sin. There is nothing in the world that is not tainted in some fashion by sin. And you say, well, Rand, how, uh, how can we tell? Uh, well, it's, it's tough to tell because we're tainted by sin. And, and this is kind of a silly illustration, but I want to take it to the nth degree so that you understand it. What does the color red look like? Just think about it for a moment. The color red. Well, fire trucks, red cars. Red cars get more speeding tickets than blue cars because it looks fast, you know, or red. Or maybe you have red clothes on. Think about it for a moment, yet your perception of everything is tainted by sin. So is red red? Well, it's red in this world. Imagine what it would be like when we get to heaven and there's no taint of sin, that, that veil is removed from our eyes. Imagine what red will look like. Now, uh, let's, let's look at gold. Gold is what color? It's gold, okay? <laughs> or it's yellow or it's white. The streets of heaven are pure gold. And what color are they? They're translucent. Because it is such pure gold. There's no sin in that place to taint anything. Okay, so just try to... We can't get our minds around it because our minds are finite. Our minds are all tainted by sin. But that's kind of what we're looking at. Everything is tainted by sin. Everything around us. Yet, in the midst of this universal effect of sin, in the midst of God's cursing the ground because of Adam, in the midst of God cursing Satan, there is the promise of the blessing that God brings from these events. All we have to do is jump 47 chapters to the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis. And what does God say through Joseph to his brothers? You meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. God alone is able to bring great blessings out of these things that the world means for evil. Now, that does not mean that we will always and immediately understand how God is using the evil things in the world to bring blessing in our life. Okay, sometimes we just have to rest in that, that God knows what he's doing, that I'm simply going to rest in the fact that, Lord, you are right and I'm just a sinful man. I'm just a sinful man. Now this Christmas we're going to sing Joy to the World. One of the reasons we sing Joy to the World was the one verse. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Okay? How far is the curse found? It is found everywhere. It is found on everything. So God comes to make his blessings known in the midst of all of that sin, in the midst 
of how this world is cursed, yet God is at work providing us blessing and caring for us. So he curses the ground, he curses Satan, but yet he promises salvation. So our salvation not only begins with a curse that he curses Satan, but our salvation also begins with a promise from God that he's going to fight for us. A promise from God that he will actually go and do the battle that we should be doing against Satan, yet he will do it. Verse 15, and I will put enmity. It is the Lord who is going to do this. It is not us. It is the Lord that will do this between you and the woman. In light of the fact, he does, he does not go to Adam and Eve and look at them and say, you know, in light of the fact that you didn't do what I told you to do, in fact, that you did exactly what I told you not to do, in light of the fact that for the rest of existence on this earth, the earth is going to be cursed because you just couldn't keep your hands off that one thing that I told you not to do. So in light of that, here is all the hoops, or here are all the hoops that you're going to have to jump through to get back in my good graces. He does not say that to them. In fact, all we have to do is to jump to the blessing that comes from the curse and know that it is God who provides Christ for us. It is God who provides salvation for us. It's not as if he says you have to do these 25 things and you have to do them perfectly because we could never, ever do them. It is God who does the providing of our salvation and the means to it. He doesn't turn to, to us and say, now go and save yourselves. You got yourselves into this mix, into this mess. You go and save yourselves. He says, I'm going to save you. So he begins our salvation by cursing Satan and then by doing battle on our behalf. And that victory is secured and that victory is promised here. It's coming through a child. Since we already know the end of the story, you know the name of the child. How does this child get here? Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So the promise of the offspring of the woman is this theme that will now run throughout, throughout the book of Genesis. Forty-one times he talks about the seed of a woman. He talks about it to Noah and to Abraham and, and Sarah, who's gone far beyond her child-rearing days. She gives birth to a child. Ruth is given a child. Isaiah chapter 7, you know, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, okay? All the way up until the New Testament and Mary, the handmaiden of the Lord, who says, the angel says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. So now you see what's going on here. Satan thought he could use the woman as a tool to mess up God's plan. And in reality, God is using the woman to provide the child who will crush the head of Satan. That's one of the surprises that comes at Christmas time, one of the surprises of God's graciousness and of his mercy. Now, God speaks to Satan here in this little passage, and he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. I think it was Muhammad Ali, but, you know, boxers in general have to have a lot of ego. But I think he used to come up and say, you know, I'm going to knock you out in the seventh round. And sure enough, he would do it. 
Not all the time, but often he would do it. But basically, that's what God is saying here. He says, this is what's going to happen. And actually, he goes and does it. And does it. Martin Luther said, God never told the devil who he, the child, was. And so the devil lived in dread of every woman's son who was a believer, especially those in the covenant line, because he never knew who he would be. If you study the history of Israel, you see how many times Satan tried to destroy the he's and the line of the covenant. Let's go back and look at how many times they tried to kill all the male children in an area or, or, or something like that. So here's the last thing. In order to achieve victory, there's going to be death. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. It's a picture of man versus serpent. Man versus serpent. Now, how do you destroy a snake? Well, it depends on who you are. You scream and call for somebody else to come and kill the snake. Uh, or you, you know, what, you put your foot on it and you cut off its head. Okay, you've got to cut off the head of the snake for it to die. If you cut off its tail, it's going to turn around and bite you. Okay, so that's what you do. You go and you cut off the head of the snake. And, and you, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, anybody who has done any hunting in a swamp or through particular areas of the world know what snake chaps are called, or what snake chaps are and what they're for. They are uh, rather uh, rigid things. You can buy them in boots or you buy them and strap them around your leg. Because when you go through swamps and things, you walk by and you might stir up a rattlesnake. If, if it's dry, you might stir up a water moccasin. If it's wet, you might stir up a copperhead. And usually you stir it up as you walk by. And once you're by, it bites you. Okay? It doesn't jump out in the middle. Typically, it doesn't jump out in the middle of the path and go, Try to get around me. No, it waits for you to go by and then it strikes at your heel. This is the, the picture here. It, and, and so he crushes the head of Satan and Satan's just going to bite at his heel. So it refers to Christ. Christ born of a woman. From the seed of a woman. See, the Lord is going to have victory over Satan. But what's the cost of victory over Satan? What's the cost of our sin? You might think, well, I, it wasn't my fault. I mean, I wasn't in the garden. If, if I'd have been in the garden, I wouldn't have done that, right? I mean, life was good. But yet we are all tainted from the very top of our head, the very tip of our toes, with sin. And the price of salvation was the death of Christ. So victory over Satan at the cost of the child's life. Charles Spurgeon kind of sums up this this passage he said God graciously offers reconciliation through his seed who conquers the devil this verse is the earliest promise of a redeemer but it comes as a surprise packaged in the mix of judgment but its unexpectedness makes God's grace shine all the brighter here you have this terrible moment and yet you have this great moment in the midst of sin, in the midst of the fall, in the midst of everything in existence being tainted by sin, there's the promise of the answer, the promise of the coming of the Redeemer. And in this season, we celebrate the coming of his birth. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what grace this is. What amazing grace this is. What a surprise it is. Here it is. We have the, in the midst of, of sin, in the midst of disobedience, in the midst of man just doing what he wants and, and ignoring what you have commanded, yet you provide the answer to the problem. The problem was so great, it's still so great, that we cannot get rid of sin in our own lives. We cannot get right with you on our own efforts. We can never be perfect. And yet, you are gracious. Yet you provide for us. You who are infinitely holy and infinitely lovely. And and we owe you our infinite obedience. But yet we are so far from that. And you rain down upon us this infinite grace that we don't deserve. Lord, as we begin to focus our attention upon the coming celebration of the birth of Christ. Remind us of our sin, Lord, that we don't deserve what we receive, but also remind us that we do receive it from you, that you have made the way, that you are the one who battles Satan, that you go before us and prepare the way so that our hearts might be enlivened, our eyes opened, that we might understand the mercy and the grace and the joy that comes through the birth of the child, Jesus the Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.